0: Many cultures just leave grass alone. One day a cricket will eat a frog and none shall shed a tear. Pigeons cannot smell your fear. A temperate climate would make the best smells. Rivers seem cranky. Wild dogs can fetch, but they won't. I think salmon try to look delicious. Insects probably hate larvae even more than bees. Take a volcano in a fight with any animal So many stars Welcome Welcome now to Out of All Doors Hello, and welcome to the 10th episode of Out of All Doors I'm your host, Adam Drent Out of All Doors is what you're listening to now And if you're expecting it to be about the outdoors Then expect to have your expectations met A pithier way to say that would be expect the expected. But remember that this only works if your expectations concerning the primary focus of this show turn out to be correct. A less pithy but more specifically accurate way to say this would be expect the show to be about the outdoors and your expectations will be met. Well, that's almost exactly what I said the first time. Whatever. Okay, before we really get going here, I need to address something that came up in the last episode. As many of you know, longtime contributor to the show, Casey Bai, delivered a segment in episode 9 called Behind Closed Doors The Inner Workings of Out of All Doors. Now, listen, when it's getting close to crunch time and I've got to get these episodes recorded and edited together and drop all the music in and everything else, I don't necessarily have time to listen to every little thing in each episode before I post them, okay? I trust my contributors, maybe to a fault, okay? And sure, as the host, maybe you'd argue that I should pay closer attention to what I'm allowing on our show. Well, from now on, I will. Because, first of all, I don't keep any diaries, okay? That's not something I do. And you know what else I don't do? I don't run water in the bathroom so people think I'm washing my hands when I'm not actually washing my hands, And I call Pop, Pop. Everyone who knows me knows that's true. I named my website Huge Pop. That's what I call it. And also, I don't even own a motorcycle. But if I did, I definitely wouldn't be too scared to ride it. I'd be nonchalant about riding it. Maybe even dangerously so. I might not even wear a helmet if I was just taking it like on a short spin, like down to the greeting card store to buy a greeting card. And I can't speak for the other guys. I don't even know if they've listened to the segment, but I have to say that considering how far off Casey was with his insider information on me, I guess there's a chance he was wrong about the other guys too. Although it wouldn't shock me to find out that Harrison did accidentally run over a hitchhiker in Canada because he didn't know how to drive his manual transmission rental car. But I do need to take this opportunity to tell you that Gentleman's Mills has reached out to me and they're pretty upset with what Casey said about them in his segment, so I just need to reassure all of you... With the fact that Gentlemen's Mills will absolutely accept payment for a full 100% of the products and services they advertise on Out of All Doors. And that comes straight from an angry letter signed by both the Dandy and the Hat, the famed co-founders of Gentlemen's Mills. Anyway, I just want to assure you that going forward, I'll be keeping a lot closer eye on what makes it onto the show, and you won't have to worry about hearing any more mistaken or maybe even deliberately false information. So, with that unpleasantness behind us, let's move forward. We're now in the thick of wedding season, as I'm sure you've all noticed by the incessant clanging of wedding bells day and night, ringing the glad matrimonial tidings for all to hear, even if they're trying to sleep because it's the middle of the night on a Wednesday. Of course, at Out of All Doors, we only care about one particular style of wedding, the outdoor wedding. The outdoor wedding is superior to the indoor wedding in every single way, much like the outdoor versions of all things are superior to the indoor versions of all things in every single way, except for open-heart surgery, wherein the success rate of the indoor version has been conclusively proven to be many times higher than its outdoor counterpart. I witnessed one outdoor open-heart surgery where a swarm of mosquitoes descended upon an exposed, beating heart while the surgeon had his back turned, and although the patient survived, he has to be talked out of attempting to cut through his own chest with a kitchen knife to give his itchy, itchy heart a scratch almost hourly. One big reason everyone loves an outdoor wedding is that it's often a good reminder that rain can ruin a wedding, but it can't ruin love. Also, if you get bored of looking at the bride, you can look at a bird and imagine that the bird is the one getting married instead of the bride, and you can look down on the bird for not writing its own vows and for publicly eating a worm at its own wedding. I think another reason that outdoor weddings are so popular is that the pastor can wear sunglasses without raising any eyebrows. I saw a pastor try that at an indoor wedding once. He claimed he needed them because the unity candle was too bright. Needless to say, by the end of the wedding, the tip jar he'd set on the edge of the stage couldn't have had more than a few bucks in it, plus an evangelistic tract. Outdoor weddings are also good because if the indoor venue in which you were considering having your wedding burns to the ground while you're having your wedding, you and your guests won't be inside burning up. You'll be safe and sound at your outdoor wedding, stopping the ceremony every few minutes so the pastor can ask the bride what she thinks all those sirens are about. And then when he sees the smoke in the distance, he'll ask the bride if she thinks the sirens had something to do with the smoke, even if he's in the middle of declaring the bride and groom husband and wife. But that's better than burning up in a venue... Outdoor weddings are also great opportunities to practice walking in mud while wearing high heels. If you didn't wear high heels to the wedding because you're a man, for example, look around for a woman with feet of approximately your size, ask to borrow her high heels, and head over to the mud pit to try your luck. And don't get me wrong, flower girls are cute, but doesn't it strike you as a little disturbing when they scatter their flower petals inside? I don't know about you, but I get distracted because I see them on the floor out of the corner of my eye and I panic because I think flowers are growing on the carpet. At an outdoor wedding, it just looks like the flowers are growing in the grass, exactly as they should, and I don't panic at all. One of the best things about an outdoor wedding is that if the bride has more attendance than the groom, a few bushes can easily stand in for groomsmen without the groom having to dig them out of the earth, pot them, carry them inside, and set them on the stage. If the outdoor wedding is at or near a public place, you get the added bonus of strangers walking or driving by being able to shout their marriage blessings at the couple mid-ceremony. Sometimes these marriage blessings are unintelligible, sure, but sometimes that's for the best. One drawback to having your wedding outside is that a herd of cattle might stampede through the ceremony, trampling everyone and everything. So you may want to have the best man put his ear to the ground every few minutes to listen for the sound of thousands of thundering hooves approaching at breakneck speeds. And there's no law saying you can't have your reception outside too, complete with dancing, bouquet toss, garter toss, etc. But you can't have wedding cake at an outdoor reception. I'm sorry, that's just how it is. I didn't make the rule, but I do enforce it if necessary. This might sound harsh, but look at it this way marriages that begin with an outdoor wedding are five times less likely to end because of the groom choking to death on wedding cake within hours of getting married. And now, with our positive outdoors centric perspective firmly re established, the rest of the show can now get underway. Let's begin, shall we? Here from regular contributor Matt Martin we have the five people you meet at an outdoor wedding. Number one is the Toastmaster. The Toastmaster is easily spotted by his gigantic costume that puts him as the meat in the sandwich board on which he's printed the exact speech he's giving. Guests are encouraged to read along with the Toastmaster as he reads his speech, so the entire wedding party wishes the bride and groom well in exact unison. At the end of the speech, the entire wedding party gives a single clap and are encouraged to throw the toast provided to them by ushers at the Toastmaster, who accepts the thrown bread with stoic reserve, never once opening his mouth to try to snatch a free bite of delicious toast. After the last pieces of toast fall to the ground, the Toastmaster exits the wedding and is not allowed to return to the wedding party while the pile of toast is crushed underfoot during the bride and groom's wedding dance. Number two is The Groomer. The groomer is a man who dresses up exactly like the groom and goes around fixing coattails, wiping away unsightly dandruff from the shoulders of wedding-goers, patting down youngsters' cowtails, brushing the bride's hair, reapplying makeup to the bride, wiping the brows of the wedding party, kissing the bride, and removing rodents from the wedding grounds. Number three is Kelly. Kelly's here looking even better than the bride. And the bride knows it, too, bless her heart. And she's sitting there crying because she was hoping she would have the best day of her life, but she knows everyone's actually breaking their necks trying to get an eyeful of Kelly. Who does Kelly think she is coming into this wedding in that little dress? Look at Rhonda's husband, just staring and staring away. No shame. No shame. And even the groom. Oh, what a pity. Kelly's smiling, too. She knows what she's doing. She does. She had this all planned out. And now look at the groom with those sly looks. On his own wedding day. And now what is he doing? He's going to Kelly with the best man. He's giving Kelly the ring right in front of the bride. And look at them, running away, running all the way away. Number four is the caricaturist. No one wants him there, but he always shows up, drawing away, turning people dressed in their finest clothes into crude and cruel doodles. He even caricatures the bride and groom, who look at the caricatures despairingly as if to ask, what have I gotten myself into? After they have been received, the caricatures are destroyed in a cleansing fire. The caricaturist's exit, some say, is the most joyous moment of the wedding itself. Number five is the flower punisher. The flower punisher is the most violent of all wedding guests, bashing people over the heads with chrysanthemums or slapping people in the face with whole bouquets. Wherever wedding guests are, the flower punisher will find them and hit them repeatedly with a variety of flowers, often inciting allergic reactions. Due to the fear and chaos he spreads, the flower punisher is too feared to be turned away and is often treated as the wedding's most valuable guest.
1: Poetry fans, Cousin Ben back again with some outdoor inspired verse to help you expand on your terse and troubling life. Some people have speculated that poetry is basically meditation about beauty. Others have suggested that it is merely an attempt to express feelings and emotions that prose cannot. A further third group suggests it's a great way to become rich, famous, and meet attractive and intelligent people who will invite you to dinner parties where you can keep their guests drinking the lyrical honey from your lips while deflecting invitations to speak at the Guggenheim or the next presidential inauguration. I say poppycock. For me, it's all about nature and paying homage to her power and majesty. And this month I've decided to swing the poetic pendulum away from majesty and more towards her power. I want to share some poems that were inspired by the recent flood here in southeast Nebraska that Cousin Brent mentioned last month. Let's dive right in, okay? She Sings I lean hard on the rail and then look straight down. It's like a strange, swirling, sepia-toned movie. Browns and whites. The harder I look, the more it appears that something below is struggling to get to the surface a creature a feeling a force as the trucks drive on the bridge it drones and vibrates with a low frequency that i feel through my feet and my hands like the churning monster is singing me a siren call low and slow like a lullaby the longer i stare into the sepia the sleepier i become i feel heavy The water looks light, soft. The sound drops away. My body goes numb. I see an eye, a tooth, a tentacle. I lose my grip. My eyes blink. Once. Twice. Another truck. And then another. I feel my balance sway. And then I realize... That water stinks, man. You know how many showers you'd need to take to get that smell off of you? And I move on.
0: This month, Gentlemen's Mills is happy to provide you with a selection of products and services specifically designed to meet your very specific wedding needs. Gentlemen's Mills wants your weddings to be the most romantic days of your lives, and they've got the goods to back that up. Just listen to these amazing things you can buy from them for your wedding. Number one, Oaken Veil. A bridal veil painstakingly carved from oak and sanded and varnished to a silken finish renders bride permanently unviewable. Number two, No Reception Announcement. Don't want to risk rude guests using their phones during your wedding ceremony? Trick them into thinking their phones won't work with gentlemen's Mill's No Reception Cards. We print 500 high-quality flyers on 200-grain resume paper embossed with the wedding colors and announcing no reception today. Watch and delight as your deceived guests power down their phones, put them away, and give their full attention to the wedding. Welding ceremony. A beautiful welding can be yours. Gentlemen's Mill's finest welders decorate, plan, bartend, weld, and cater this elegant metal-themed party. A real union-certified, ordained welder takes the lucky couple's vows while a quartet of welders clangs and bangs on some I-beams and engine tubing to perform a romantic version of tubular bells. A special eye-searing welding ceremony takes place after the vows, where two welders weld a broken strand of rebar. Number 4. Bride Umbrella Worried that your outdoor wedding might get rained on? This umbrella keeps the bride nice and dry while everyone else gets soaked to the bone, even her weak-old grandma number five groomsmen halos all your groomsmen look like angels the halos are color-coded silver means these groomsmen are heavy set gold means they're not supposed to have sugar green means these groomsmen aren't really all that angelic if you get the picture number six doves and ducks a cage of ducks meant to be released from the altar toss one duck at the bride while the best man shouts, dove, I mean duck. He'll get the words out in time, but the bride's reflexes are surely not good enough to avoid being struck by the duck. After the bird strike, the audio video technician displays the projected phrase for the guests to rebuke the bride in unison. He said duck. Number seven, unitire. Literally anything can symbolize unity in your wedding ceremony, even this old tire. Number eight, Your Lucky Day, spelled D-A-E. A kind Korean cloaks you in his luckiest gambling clothes for your big day. No one's hand is hotter than Lucky Day's. Number nine, Kind of Advice. Guests are instructed to write kind of advice in this album keepsake. If confused guests write kind advice, it shall be modified into kind of advice by gentlemen's Mill's co-founders The Hat and the Dandy until suitable for presentation. Number 10. Old Marriage Face This is an affectionate nickname we here at Gentleman's Mills have for an ancient bouquet of artificial flowers that we've been renting out to marrying couples since the early 1900s. Old Marriage Face has decorated over 15,000 weddings and is still going strong to this day. There are no pictures of Old Marriage Face, you must order him sight unseen, and any attempts to receive a refund for the services of Old Marriage Face will be met with swift, strident opposition by Gentleman's Mills' frightening legal team. Number 11. The Lost City of Alabama The wedding DJ plays a 70-minute recording of Morgan Freeman telling the story of Atlantis, but always confusing it with Alabama. Number 12. Pinch of Salt This modest amount of salt is for if the wedding reception peanuts at your table aren't quite salty enough for your liking. Number 13. Father of the Bride Booster Seat There's nothing sadder than a father of the bride who can't see his daughter getting married because he's too short to see over the heads of the guests seated in front of him father of the bride booster seat rids the world of this particular sadness forever. Number 14. Wake Me When It's Over A financially weighty arrangement wherein you get written into the prenup by the rich bride's attorney and enter a medically induced coma by the hand of the groom's anesthetist. You must win the bride's hand upon regaining consciousness or quickly come to grips with your new life of destitution. Number 15. Wedding Clause This figurine looks like Santa, but look closer and you'll see a rap sheet filled with many, many bigamy convictions. Number 16, Bridal Wave. A two-hour training session wherein Gentleman's Mill's co-founders, the Hat and the Dandy, teach the ring bearer to mock the bride's stupid wave. Number 17, Spare Ring Finger. When the success of the entire ceremony hinges on two fragile digits, why leave anything to chance? Number 18, The Blob. An usher jumps from the balcony onto a giant inflatable bag, launching the groom toward the baptismal tank in this variation on the classic summer camp tradition. Number 19, Total Recall Wedding Edition. The Total Recall DVD box is pushed into a tiny wedding dress. The box itself is compromised in order to make it sexier in its new dress. And number 20, Wedding Shotgun. Ride shotgun in a stagecoach driven by runaway stallions approaching 30 miles per hour on a jagged rocky road. The minister keeps a shouting and a-askin' what exactly is he supposed to be hitchin', these steeds or you? Come one, come all, says the carnival barker waving to us with his cane. It's a good thing he added that come all, because we always travel as a group, so merely inviting one of us is a good way to ensure that none of us come. We walk over to the carnival barker. Inside this tent, he says, twisting the end of his mustache with his fingertips, twisting it so much that he actually twists it off of his face with a terrible rip, he cries out and flees from his little podium thing, clutching his face, his declaration of what one would find inside this tent forever unfinished. Our only clue is the fact that the outside of the tent is covered in photorealistic paintings of bats. With no one around to take our money, we don't contribute even one dime to the carnival's empty coffers before opening the tent flap and stepping inside. The interior of the huge tent is dark, but filled with nervous flapping activity. We usually identify primarily as a collective, a group, we being our preferred personal pronoun. But in this case, I'd like to point out that it was me who whispered, low and reverent, We have entered the battery. A bat inadvertently found a hole in the deepest, darkest depths of darkness in his cave that, when he flew through it, transported him back in time to an era in which bats were known as the most professional of all animals, and it learned many valuable lessons from its ancient ancestors, techniques and attitudes and stratagems of batness, of which it had only been subconsciously aware, perhaps, but which it had never engaged with on a direct and personal level. Unfortunately, it couldn't find its way back to the present day so it just stayed in the past which it grew to tolerate once it picked up the subtleties of old timey wit but the one thing it never got used to was how instead of old wives tales everyone just called them wives tales even though the wives who shared the tales were often old the best thing about being in the past though other than the professionalism stuff was the fact that there were no spelunkers and no mosquito foggers. In the end, the bat probably would have given the past that became his home a 6.5 out of 10. A young girl wants to grow up to be a mad scientist so she can make a monkey-bat hybrid, but she doesn't tell her parents about her dream because she's pretty sure they don't want there to be monkey-bat hybrids in the world because they're afraid of new things and afraid of things they don't understand, and the young girl is certain her parents will never understand the complexities of her monkey-bat hybrids. She definitely wants her hybrids to be more bat than monkey, though. She basically wants to end up with a bat that knows sign language. Later in life, she thinks, wait, has anyone ever just tried to teach a bat sign language? She checks out a lab bat from the bat lab and takes it to her home laboratory where she already has quite a few monkeys on hand, although they're mostly just hanging around and smoking cigars and rocking too fast in their child-sized rocking chairs. The young girl, not quite so young anymore, spends weeks trying to teach the bat sign language, often shouting for the monkeys to pipe down so the bat can concentrate. In the end, the bat learns no sign language. Not only that, the girl doesn't even make any Monkey-Bat hybrids. All she makes is a grindcore power metal hybrid band with six of her friends. And that's pretty much it for her successful hybrids in her life, depending on your definition of successful, because the band only ever goes on two short tours and sells maybe a total of 400 records. And I don't know what happens to the monkeys, but the Bat, who never learns sign language because he has no interest, does pick up the monkeys' fondness for cigars. Let me tell you about a trio of bats who started out ordinary, but went on to become extraordinary. First of all, they didn't have names and, to the layman, they looked indistinguishable from each other. Soon, they grew from baby bats into adult bats. They lived in a cave with, like, a million other bats and they were happy. But then, one day, they all happened to hang upside down from the bottom of the basket of a hot air balloon and a newspaper photographer got a good picture of them, wherein one of the bats looked like he was smiling and the other two looked irritated, so it kind of looked like one of the bats was telling a joke that he thought was funny, but the other two bats thought was stupid. it should also be mentioned that a woman fell out of the hot air balloon when it was over 200 feet off the ground and she landed right on the ground but survived with only a broken collarbone and you could see the woman just starting to topple out of the hot air balloon in the same picture as the one bat laughing two bats not laughing picture so it was a crazy story all the way around but with a happy satisfying ending a famous perfume company came up with a fragrance called simply bat Its tagline was, Be nocturnal, but spoken with an accent so exotic it came across as openly disdainful. Simply Bat was selling like extremely hot cakes for a while. The hotter the cakes, the better they sell. But sales took a turn for the worse when someone sprayed some Simply Bat on an actual bat, and the bat slipped into a coma. The nation held its breath each morning to check the newspaper to see if the bat had died, or if it had woken up, or if it was still in the coma. For months, the newspaper told the nation that the bat was still in the coma every morning, and the nation exhaled because at least the bat wasn't dead. But then an investigative journalist blew the whole story wide open. No one had ever sprayed a bat with Simply Bat. The whole thing was a hoax. The nation breathed a giant sigh of relief, but then some numbskull actually did spray a bat with Simply Bat, and that real bat went straight into a real coma. They had to feed him pureed bugs through an IV. How'd you like to be the nurse in charge of catching a bunch of tiny bugs and pureeing them? Yuck! But many nurses gladly did exactly that. All to keep the comatose bat alive. The biggest problem was the fact that since the first incident had been a hoax, a lot of people thought this real incident was a hoax, too. And their lack of belief in the bat caused it to slip deeper and deeper into its coma. So deep, just looking at the bat sort of made you want to slip into a coma. It turns out that no species on Earth commits to a coma quite like a bat does. But everything must eventually end, and one day someone thought, hey, let's scrub all the Simply Bat out of the bat's fur. So that's what they did, and the bat woke up, and everything went back to normal. Which is why everything is still normal to this day. We've had a good time thinking about bats today, but I'd like to take a moment to address a serious issue that we here at Out of All Doors are very concerned about. White Nose Syndrome. White Nose Syndrome is a disease caused by an insidious fungus. It kills bats. It's already killed millions. This is a true tragedy, and you can help by donating to research to fight the disease, buying or building bat houses for bats to roost in, and some other stuff too, like educating your children and planting moth-attracting flower gardens. Learn more at batconservation.org. That's where I learned pretty much everything I know about white nose syndrome. This message is fully endorsed by The Saint. This has got to be one of the most bat-filled tents we've ever spent time in. The biggest reason for that is probably that the people who run this carnival filled this tent with bats on purpose. That's really all you need to increase the concentration of bats anywhere. A goal, a plan for achieving that goal, a little effort, someone to do the dirty work, someone to cover up said dirty work, and someone to take the fall if the cover up doesn't work. In many ways, this carnival tent filled with bats has been an inspiration to us all. One that we won't soon forget, even if government officials strongly imply that we should for our own well-being. Yes, friends, bats aren't everywhere, but they could be. For now, we feel our way along the edge of the tent in the dim light, our vision obscured by the sheer volume of bats until we find the flap through which we enter. We slip back out into the summer night. Back onto the carnival grounds with all of its attendant sensory assaults. We leave the battery. Summer is here for real now. For real, real. What with the heat and the massive quantities of daylight and the schools being permanently deserted. I'm serious. They're never having school again. Mark my words. When fall rolls around and no one goes back to school, you remember I said this. Anyway, when I think of summer, I think of two things. Lemonade and fine handcrafted glasses frames made from locally gathered wood and made on pedal-powered machinery by the two undisputed lords of summer, Dave and Brett, over at Featherwood Frames. Now, as far as lemonade goes, I have no idea how one goes about acquiring it. I usually just get mine when someone sneaks into my room and pours it into my open mouth while I sleep. I don't know who does it, and I find the whole thing terrifying. But it only happens during the summer, hence the association. But I do know how you and me and everyone in the world can get those glasses I was talking about. By visiting featherwoodframes.com, the best site on the internet devoted entirely to featherwood frames. There you can look at pictures of glasses... Watch a little video about the process, read their philosophy, or just aimlessly click around, highlighting and unhighlighting text with your mouse at random. Eventually, as the June bugs whistle outside your window and the spring peepers undergo puberty and become summer peepers, and as the geese make a point of not flying south, and as the ice cream truck rams a fire hydrant until it snaps off, spraying water into the air so the children can frolic therein, while all this is happening, you will find yourself wanting to order a pair of glasses from featherwoodframes.com, and you will want to do it so much that you will do it, and you will never regret it. In fact... You'll not regret it so much that whenever anyone asks you if you have any regrets, you'll always preface your long, long list of regrets with, well, I'll tell you one thing I don't regret, buying these featherwood frames. Featherwood frames. Light as a feather. I am plant
2: these me, see how strong and see how mighty I am. I am, I am, I am, I am. Hello friends. Welcome. Welcome to Nature Serenade. You are most welcome. Thank you for visiting me in my special place, my little bit of heaven on earth where we can commune with nature. This is a place where we can celebrate Mother Earth's beauty through the glorious medium of folk music. I am your host, Gregory Hugavine, or G Honey for short. (laughs) This is a safe place. I'm so glad you decided to share your time with me. Today, I am here in my vegetable and herb garden. I love to come out here every day, early in the morning and just, just sit. Sit and listen to the gentle morning breeze. Sit and listen to the songs of the robins, wrens, and sparrows. Sit and listen to the squirrels mischievously barking at one another. I sit and listen to my breathing. I think about how each breath is a new and beautiful gift. I think about my life. It relaxes me and brings me peace. I encourage each of you listeners to do this very thing every day. You will be amazed at what it brings to your life. If you do not have a vegetable or herb garden, find a bit of grass in place. For listeners in desert climates who have no grass, I encourage you to go buy several potted plants. You can place the potted plants in a circle and put yourself in the center. Oh, and make sure those plants have all natural soil and compost. You know what I always say, natural is nature's natural choice. Therefore, it is always the best choice. Now, as all my listeners know, I am many things, but what I am most is a folk singer. If this is your first time listening to Nature's Serenade, I sing melodies that deal with current important issues in our world. Which brings me to this, part of the reason I chose to record this week's show in my garden is is somewhat of a personal one, and I am hoping that I can get through this without getting all misty-eyed and choked up. But I am an advocate for all things misunderstood, and maybe that's because my whole life I feel like I've been misunderstood. I'm sure some of you listeners feel the same way too, but when a creature that is helpless and has no voice of its own is misunderstood, well, it becomes my mission, my crusade, to to give that living thing a voice of its own. And so, today, it. oh shoot, I promised myself I wasn't going to cry, just give me a moment, Okay. Okay, I I'm I'm good. <laughs> uh, uh, s- sorry. <clears throat> and so today I'd like to talk about one of nature's most misunderstood critters, the squash bug or Corydia. Every summer, many greedy gardeners who have dreams of skilled summer squash, yellow squash casserole, Summer squash bread, fried squash blossoms, stuffed patty pan squash, garlicky summer squash, coconut walnut squash, ratatouille, squash with pasta, vegetable hash, squash in the raw, etc., etc. Uh, will have it a colossal meltdown when they see the eggs of the Coriidae on the underside of the squash plant leaves. Immediately, the murderous gardeners take action and, and execute the the innocent squash bugs with with chemical herbicides, only to fill their gluttonous bellies with an overabundance of squash and zucchini. Let me ask you this. Has a squash bug done anything wrong? No! Is a squash bug guilty of some heinous crime? Of course not! All the squash bug wants to do is survive. And they should have the right to survive. I say all gardeners, and Cory and I, need to live in peace and harmony. Sure, maybe one or two summers the plants will be completely destroyed by the squash bug, but that's nature's way, and the way nature intended it. And remember, nature's natural choice is always the best choice. So with that in mind, I've written a beautiful song in honor of the misunderstood Coriidae. I call it The Squash Bugs of Tomorrow. books of tomorrow i All I have so far uh, on that song. <laughs> Ho- hopefully, you get the idea. It's uh, it's it's a bit of a work in progress. Well, I would like to thank all of you for joining me. It's been a special, rewarding time for me. I hope it was special for you. For you, first-time listeners and my loyal followers, please come back again next week for Nature's Serenade. See how strong and see how mighty I am. I am. I am. I am. I am.
1: Cousin Ben, back to bring you another poem inspired by the Nebraska flood of 2015. The floodwaters have receded some now, but the Big Blue River in particular is still up quite a bit and moving right along. But everywhere you go, the evidence of nature's fury still remains. Watercolor. A landscape painted with brown accidentally mixed into the green. All the grass looks like a chocolate milk tanker crash nearby. Styrofoam, trash cans, soccer balls everywhere... Roll away dumpsters holding entire houses' contents. Railroad tracks that are now roller coaster tracks. Barricades and rubberneckers. The soldiers came with six by six and chinook. The thop thop of the blades echoing instead of the clop clop of hooves. Ghosts of floods past. Terrible displays of bad math and memory. I've not seen this much water since seventy one. 72, 74, the last big one was 21, 23, 27 years ago. It crested 3, 8, 12 feet higher than in the 80s. Ball field fences clogged and weighed down, falling over from debris hanging on them. Picnic tables rolled into balls and piled against trees. DeWitt, Nebraska, the birthplace of the vice grip, baptized and evacuated once again. Never you fear, though. All that production was sent to China ten years ago. The great American tool is dry in Chinese hands now, safe from Nebraska floods. DeWitt is just a husk now. One more corn silk washed up and stuck in a pile of thousands in the corner of a field by cheap labor and excessive rainfall. The most American of tools from the most American of towns drowned by the most American of concepts. Shop vacs and squirrel cages, sump pumps and gutter fences, stinking mud and strange debris. Tornadoes and floods are like some senile ant. Both have a way of leaving strange gifts that read like a stream of consciousness poem. Doll. Boot. Lamp. Letter. Dog toy. Jewelry box. Dress, hat, board game, book, Naga hide. Someone ought to write about this, you say, and then swing at the cloud of mosquitoes.
0: And now, again be welcome to the Campfire of Chills. If you have a frightening story for the Campfire of Chills, send it to outofalldoors at gmail.com. But tonight, our chilling tale for the Campfire of Chills comes from a listener named Deanna. She writes When I first got scared, I was walked to my friend's house. Her name is Deanna, too. I hope that isn't confusing. I saw her on the porch of her house, waving, saying, Hi, Deanna. She said that, not me, but then I said it to her. It's our secret greeting for us. One says, hi, Deanna, then the other one says, hi, Deanna. She usually says it first, but I try to beat her, but she's too quick. She always says, hi, Deanna, first. And then I say it to her, feeling kind of bad, because I'm slow at saying, hi, Deanna. But this time when I said it, she disappeared. And when I got to the porch, I was like, hmm, weird, because she wasn't hiding anywhere. She was just gone. So I rang doorbell, and her mom said, hi, Deanna, but not in me and deanna's secret way just a normal hi deanna and i was like hi missus and then i forgot her last name so i said is deanna here and she said no deanna died 15 years ago how did you even know we had a baby who was named deanna we didn't tell you about her you're too young and i was like this is strange Then who did I say hi to tonight and all those other times? I said, wait, you're telling me Deanna's dead? How did she die? And Deanna's mom was like, I've told you too much already. Now I have to kill you. But to answer your question, Deanna died in a car accident where the car crashed into a forest fire and made the fire even bigger, plus knocking over some more trees in addition. Now I really have to kill you. Deanna's mom pulled out one of those old... One of those big old knives like you see in kitchen or in the knife department at Walmart, and she tried to stab me with it, but something grabbed her arm. It was Deanna, not me, but my friend, the one her mom said was dead. But she wasn't, or was she? Because I could see right through her, even though she was holding her mom's arm, so I wouldn't be stabbed. Deanna's mom was like, let me stab. She knows too much, but Deanna, not me, but my friend Deanna, who was ghost, said... No, she's my friend. So her mom was like, but if I stab, then you can be ghost friends together. But Deanna said, no, mom, she's already ghost. Look at her. But Deanna said, No, Mom, she's already ghost. Look. And her mom looked at me and dropped the knife, and Deanna said, And you're ghost too, Mom. Everyone's a ghost on this porch right now. I'm sorry. I should have told you both sooner, but now you know why you're always sad. It's sad being a ghost, but hey, at least you know now. And I said, No, I'm not a ghost. Just because you're a ghost, Deanna, doesn't mean you know everything. And Deanna said, Prove you're not ghost. I said, How do I prove? And she said... Text someone. Ghost can text. Ghost can't text. So I got out phone and sent text to Kaylee and said, text back, girl. Then waited. Kaylee didn't text back. I thought maybe I can't text. Then Kaylee texted back. I can't say what she said, but it was bad, but funny, but wrong on so many levels. But Deanna was like, okay, Deanna, you're not ghost. But mom, you are deaf. You deaf are. Deanna was like, okay, Deanna, you're not ghosts, but mom, you deaf are, so then we know who ghosts were. I was so freaked out, I went home, and then I woke up. It was all a dream, but then I picked up my phone. What time is it? It's still night. I only asleep for an hour. I tried to text. I couldn't text.
3: Pam and Brian Benson were married in a courthouse and it took them thirteen years to save up the money for a real wedding. The Bensons, you may recall, were the owners of Pseudo-Dionysus, Corndog's father and the father of the mongrel horde, the teeming swarm of half lab strays that rove Montgomery Township. The Bensons' wedding, both the ceremony and the reception, was to be held in their front yard. In attendance were five of the six families that lived on our block, Pastor Dave from the Methodist Church, who was performing the ceremony, and the evening staff from Cooney's, the town bar, which was catering the reception. Those invited but not in attendance included the entirety of Pam and Brian's families, who were scattered around Ohio and Indiana and unable or unwilling to make the trip. Among those families were a good half-dozen cute children who would have made excellent ring-bearers, but since they weren't there rolls given to Corndog. After giving him his first bath in months, my mother had tied the rings around his neck with a piece of white ribbon. Not long after the proceedings officially started, the guests began hearing faint howls emanating from the woods to the southwest. The Bensons had almost decided to have the reception at Dutch Wilson's Party Barn for fear that the smell of Cooney's pulled pork in the open air would attract the mongrel horde. But that would have cost an extra $300, and the horde hadn't been seen on our block in weeks. Like many of Benson's other decisions, hindsight proved this to be a mistake. Soon the black-brown mass could be seen emerging from the woods three-quarters of a mile or so away. The guests began looking for an appropriate point in the ceremony to slink away to their cars, but this was thwarted by Pastor Dave increased his cadence to a barely intelligible pace in the hopes of completing the ceremony, or at least the essential parts of it, before the horde arrived. In the midst of this distraction, I forgot to keep my grip on Corndog's collar, and he slipped away unnoticed into the Benson's house. Inside was Pseudo-Dionysus, who was watching a fourth consecutive episode of a competitive bathroom remodeling show called Vanity of Vanities. Benson's had put ten of them, commercials edited out, onto a VHS tape in the hopes of keeping him occupied during the ceremonies. It's hard to understand, let alone describe, how Corndog communicated with Pseudo Dionysus, or with any other dogs for that matter. From what I can gather, it involved a series of growls, smells, and facial expressions. But whatever the medium, his message was straightforward enough. Corndog knew that if anyone had a chance of turning away the Horde, it was Pseudo-Dionysus, the Horde's collective father and the only authority to which it showed even the slightest amount of deference. Corndog pled with Pseudo-Dionysus to exercise that authority for his master's sake, but he gave no response. His attention fixed on the television contractor as he explained to a couple that they could now flush their toilets with an iPhone smelling the horde drawing closer corndog at last reached his front paws up onto the couch positioning himself snout to snout with his father and let out a ball with every bit of basset hound in his nature Pseudo Dionysus snarled sprang from the couch and sank his teeth into corndog's left shoulder with a yelp he dashed out the back door through the yard into the bean field just as the mongrel horde was crossing the creek bed that defined the southern boundary of the Benson's property. My brothers, he howled, but even he couldn't hear it over the bacchic roar that surrounded him. The horde crashed over him like a wave, trampling him to unconsciousness and knocking the Benson's rings into some crevice or fissure of the field that the couple, despite looking for a week, could never locate. Corndog awoke to a desolate scene of toppled lawn chairs and crumpled foil baking pans. The guests had all left, and Brian was sitting on the tailgate of his truck trying, no success, to help Pan scrub the barbecue sauce from her wedding dress. As Corndog lay dazed and panting in the field, he saw Pseudo Dionysus emerge from the house, walk out into the yard, and lap the coleslaw juice from a plastic serving spoon. After a few moments, he finished, and, with an indifference that Corndog was too innocent to discern, walked back inside.
0: It's been a while since I did my last round of Natch Features film reviews, so I'm going to do another round today. Just to bring you up to speed in case you've forgotten... Natch Features was a small but extremely prolific production company that, in its heyday, released dozens of films each month, all of which were thematically tied to the outdoors in some way. These films, while often not very good, were very influential in my life and in the lives of many of our contributors, and in some ways you could almost see Natch Features as sort of a progenitor of Out of All Doors. One big thing that sets us apart from Natch Features, however, other than our commitment to quality, is the fact that episodes of Out of All Doors are readily available to anyone who's got iTunes, whereas Natch Features films are very, very difficult to find. Just to give you an idea of how difficult it is to obtain copies of Natch Features films, I'll tell you that there are very few Natch Features collectors left because many of them have lost their lives in pursuit of their hobby, often in grotesque and grisly ways. Now, I'd never want any of you listeners to risk having the same fate befall you unless it was really, really worth it. So I'm going to tell you about a couple of Natch features classic films today, and then I'm going to tell you if they're worth the Herculean effort that would be required to actually view even a short clip from either of them. Now, since the next episode isn't going to come out until after the 4th of July, let's start with something inspired by that particular, peculiarly patriotic holiday, in case you decide you want to try to see some of these before the actual holiday uh, begins. Okay, so this first film is called Day of Independence. Now, I can't find a release date anywhere on the packaging for this film, but Day of Independence may or may not be an attempt to profit on the popularity of the famous 90s alien invasion movie Independence Day. Anyway, it's a sci-fi retelling of The Bombing of Fort McHenry, wherein Francis Scott Key's name has been inexplicably changed to Francis Dave Key, and the title of The Star-Spangled Banner has been inexplicably changed to The Banner Has Stars on It. Some Natch Features scholars have argued that the film's connection to nature is tenuous at best, but I believe that Day of Independence justifies its inclusion in the Natch Features canon, In one scene in particular, the infamous Francis Dave Key teaches an invading alien the usefulness of a beaver pelt scene. It's an awful scene for all the reasons everyone always lists, and we certainly don't have time to address all of the scene's many offenses here, but the entire scene does take place in the woods, and beaver trapping was one of the quintessential outdoors activities of the era. I will say that, for my money, the alien actually looks more obscene when he's wearing the beaver pelt than he does when he isn't wearing anything. In the end, all of the explosions in the world couldn't save Day of Independence from the boringness of the interminable national anthem writing scenes that comprise most of the film. Considering the length you'd have to go to just to find someone who'd found someone who'd heard of someone who'd watched this movie, I'd say you'll be much better off not even trying. So don't. The second film I'm going to address today is called Firecrackers. Why here? Why now? Continuing our theme of movies related to the 4th of July, this Natch Features film was actually part of a series of movies based on the little-known children's educational show Subject Question Question. This particular film is about the history of the 4th of July, and it actually has a lot going for it. However, it was made using an unusual technique wherein traditional puppetry was combined with synchrovox, a filming technique wherein static images are combined with moving images, usually used to superimpose talking lips onto a static image of a celebrity or a cartoon drawing or an animal in a commercial. So, considering the fact that the puppets already had moving mouths, the decision to superimpose what can only be described as some of the most revolting lips you can imagine over those puppet mouths is beyond perplexing. The lips smack, tongues make numerous unwelcome appearances, and whoever the lips belonged to was incapable of saying an F sound without spraying spit everywhere and he literally says either the word firecracker or fourth in every single sentence. In fact, firecracker almost becomes a verbal pause that he uses to fill space while audibly flipping through his script to find his lines. I'd never longed for the sight of a regular puppet mouth more than I did during my one partial viewing of this film. This film is unwatchable for both adults and children, so I would advise against watching it, even if you already own it, which you almost certainly don't, nor will you ever, because to do what it takes to own this film would wring you out like a dish rag, leaving you rumpled and damp and draped limply over a faucet. So again, in conclusion, these films are not very good, and you probably shouldn't bother to watch them, even if they fall out of the sky and strike you on the head much less spend the entirety of your massive fortune to see them, a fortune that should instead be spent on, if nothing else, slightly better Natch Features films, some of which I hope to cover on future episodes of Out of All Doors.
1: Cousin Ben here with the final poem of the day. Perhaps before I get into this last one, a little bit of context is going to be in order. I pay my bills in the outdoors. I repair underground sprinkler systems and also lay sod for a living. And this job allows me a very special relationship with the animal kingdom. Why? Well, I spend a lot of my time on the ground and digging in the dirt. So the critters and I end up eye to eye most of the time. And this poem is about one such interaction I had this month. farm hand the rains fell and the rivers rose if it's not wet it's mud if it's not mud it's moist if it's not moist it's humid and it's all miserable as I walked onto his farm the now soft white but formerly yellow Labrador with mud to his knees greeted me tail gently wagging His gait suggested he was no longer worried about my intentions. His manner said, What news do you bring me from the outside world, friend? As I dug in the ground, my knees pressing out the water from the dirt, he sat across from me. While we shared commiserating glances, knowing looks and the conversation that only comes of shared hardship. He didn't pant or breathe the busy breath of a younger dog. "'Mouth closed, eyes heavily lidded. "'He looked slowly to the churning storm clouds "'that never seemed to leave, "'then back to the woman in the garden working up a sweat "'under the bandana wrapped around her short hair, "'then back to me. "'He said, "'This old farmhand has heard a thousand farmers' almanacs read, "'but I don't put no stock in men's predictions. "'I trust my nose and my bones.' And you and I know what's coming. But they, they are oblivious. I'm tired, Ben. I'm tired of the thunder and the mud and the mosquitoes and the smell of rain. I'm tired. When, Lord? When will it be my time? And the rains fell and the rivers rose.
0: Close your eyes. Perfect. You're getting so good at that part. Now it's time for the parts you struggle with. Relaxing and lying down. But keep practicing. You'll get it someday. Hopefully before your kids are old enough to realize how much you struggle with it. Especially since it will probably come so naturally to them. And it'll be difficult for them to maintain their respect for you when your relaxing and lying down style is so, well, herky-jerky. But, all that matters right now is that your eyes are closed, you're lying down, and you're relaxed. And we're not going to worry any more about how you managed to accomplish all that. Not for now, anyway. You are a beautiful bride wearing a beautiful white wedding dress. A white veil hangs over your face, keeping your beauty a secret from all the wedding guests who are only meeting you for the first time here at your wedding. They may have read about your beauty in the novelization of the movie based on your life, but they don't actually know how your beauty really looks, and that must really steam them. Oh well. Your wedding is an outdoor wedding, of course, and your father is walking you down the aisle. We still call it an aisle because the aisle is a crucial component of all weddings, be they indoors or outdoors. But at this point, you're at the very back of the aisle, still quite far away from your groom and the attendants and the pastor and the guests. It's just you and your dad walking in the grass with tall trees close on both sides of you, your dad's right arm linked with your left arm. In your right hand, you hold a bouquet of flowers so fragrant that the aroma actually flutters your veil like wind. Oh wait, that's just the wind carrying the aroma and fluttering your veil at the same time, so you can see how I'd make that mistake. Your father is sleepwalking down the aisle with you. He pulled a double shift at the side-effect free medicine factory last night, so you don't blame him for wanting to catch a few Z's while walking his daughter down the aisle at her wedding. You're sure he'll wake up when it's actually time to deliver you to your fiancé, who happens to be the groom at this very wedding. You can just imagine him waiting there for you now, probably chain-smoking to kill some time and calm his nerves while you approach down this very, very long outdoor wedding aisle. The sun is shining down on you like an enormous spotlight that also illuminates everything else in the solar system, which makes it seem a little less special than a regular spotlight, admittedly. Behind you, you hear the sound of running, running, running. Then the ring-bearer dog goes sprinting past you and on ahead, trailing his leash. Attached to the end of the leash, bouncing along behind the ring-bearer dog is a glove, the leash glued to its palm. The ring-bearer dog handler thought that if he glued the leash to his glove, there would be no way the dog could get away from him. But in his short-sighted arrogance, he apparently forgot that gloves come off. Yes, gloves come off. Well, the rings are going to arrive ahead of you, the bride. Hopefully that isn't bad luck. We'll have to consult the wedding luck chart before we start the vows to see if it is indeed bad luck for the rings to arrive at the ceremony before the bride, and, if so, if there's anything we can do to counteract that bad luck. Beside you, your father begins to snore, and you feel him start to veer away from the aisle, but you keep your arm locked in his and keep him on track. Behind you, you hear more running, 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 The two flower-girl dogs go sprinting past, their little flower-petal baskets already jostled empty. And both flower-girl dogs are trailing leashes too, one with another glove glued to it, the other tied to the belt loop of a pair of pants with the entire backside ripped out of them from the bottoms of the pant legs all the way up to the waist. You maintain your brightly pace. You don't smile, but it's not because you aren't happy. You're very happy. But you've got the veil, so you don't have to smile, which is very freeing. It feels great to be happy and not smile at the same time. Now up ahead, seated along both sides of the aisle, you can finally see your guests. They sense your eyes on them and they turn as one to look back at you, many of them having to either imagine what you look like or beg the few guests who have seen your face to describe what it looks like. As you draw closer, you hear someone say, She's smiling under that veil. I'd stake everything I own on it. You're tempted to lift your veil and turn the guest into a pauper in one instant, but you don't. You just keep gleefully not smiling to yourself. And there, at last, is your fiancé, the groom himself, scrolling through real estate listings on his phone, trying to find a home for you to start your life together. He was technically supposed to have done that already. He promised he'd have found a house by the time you were married. You assumed he'd accomplished that since you hadn't heard anything about it in a while. But now here he is, scrolling faster and faster as you make your slow, bridely way past the assembled guests. The ring-bearer dog and the two flower girl dogs are all greedily lapping water out of the same porcelain basin, painted in a red and black plaid to match your bridesmaid's dresses. On your arm, your father wakes up. "'Oh, thank God,' he whispers to you. "'I was just having a nightmare that I was at work "'and I accidentally made a whole batch of medicine "'that had a side effect, and, as punishment, "'my boss made me promise to ruin your wedding.' At long last, you arrive at the front of the assembled guests. Your fiancé, the groom, is still scrolling his phone in a desperate, last-second attempt to find a house. He's holding up one finger at the pastor to delay him just a little longer. The groom's groomsmen are standing in a straight line, hands folded at their waists, heads bowed, lips moving soundlessly as they pray that the groom will find a house for you in time. They're very devoted groomsmen, just doing their jobs. One of them has a single stubby horn surgically implanted on his forehead, though, which annoys you. He definitely didn't have that at the rehearsal last night. Your bridesmaids are all smiling, except for half of them. And of the ones who are smiling, several, it now appears, are not. Their red and black plaid dresses really accentuate their best qualities. And the silver swords that all the bridesmaids wear on their hips literally say, We mean business if you press the buttons on the pommels. That was an unconventional feature you were adamant about having. The pastor tells your fiancé, the groom, that he needs to put his phone away now because the bride is here and it's time for him to get married to her, meaning you. But you're fine with waiting. It's such a nice day and the ring-bearer dog and the flower girl dogs are being really cute. They're roughhousing, they're burying the rings and the rich black earth like bones. The pastor gives you a sympathetic smile as if to say, I'm trying to start the wedding now in case you hadn't noticed. You don't smile back, because why bother when you've got this veil? You love the veil so much, you might marry it instead of your fiancé the groom if he doesn't put his phone away soon. And then suddenly your fiancé the groom holds his phone aloft in a pose of triumph. I found a house for us, he shouts. Let me see, you say. He shows you his phone. On the screen is a picture of a beautiful home, complete with a mailbox stuffed so full of letters that they're actually splitting the sides of the mailbox. Who wouldn't want to receive that much mail every day? Hold on, you say. Did you look down here at the details? It says here that every room in this house is a kitchen. No bedrooms, no bathrooms, no living rooms, not even closets, just kitchens. Your fiance, the groom, looks crestfallen. I should have read more carefully, he says. It's okay, you say, patting his arm. Let's try to get married now. The assembled guests applaud affectionately. The pastor, excited to finally begin, opens his mouth to speak, holds it that way as if intentionally giving the universe ample opportunity to send a bee into his mouth, and then it happens. A bee flies into his mouth. But it hates it in there, so it turns around and flies right back out, no harm done. That's how good your wedding ceremony is about to be. So good that bees fly into people's mouths and right back out, and no one gets hurt, not even the bee. And now, as you emerge from your relaxed state, as you manually reverse the lying down process, as you return your eyelids to their open positions, I advise you to cherish love and to love cherishing. And in addition to those two droplets of profundity, I encourage you to carry the peace of Out of All Doors with you this week, even when you're inside of one or more doors. Thanks for listening to the 10th episode of Out of All Doors. I'm Adam Drent, and I would like to thank Matt Martin, Andy Poppenfoos, J.J. Evans, Casey By, Grang Lynch, Bed Bird, Cayman Bird, Chris Nichols, and Aaron Eikenberry for their contributions, written, audible, and technical. And thanks to Casey By and J.J. Evans for making all the music used in the show. If you'd like to get in touch for any reason, you can send emails to the show at outofalldoors at gmail.com or me personally at adamdrent at gmail.com. You can also call or text me at 574-518-1983. I'd love to hear from you, and I'm active on Twitter, too. I'm at Huge Pop. And here's another thing I'd love. If you went on iTunes and rated this podcast, maybe wrote a review, maybe even subscribed, and be sure to check out my website, hugepop.com, where you can find links to my other projects, including Bedtime Stories, One Man's World, and the music I make is The Mispronouncer. Bedtime Stories and One Man's World are also on iTunes if you search for them under podcasts, and you could rate and review those, too and a Bedtime Stories app is also available for all smart-style phones. We'll be back in a month with episode 11 of Out of All Doors.